And as I said, I believe it will be one of the benchmark and the watershed days in the life of this church, as I trust God will transform you and me by the truth of Scripture. And we come to a very, very special time in our life together. Let's begin by reading two brief verses as we introduce the book of Colossians this morning, the first two verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I think it's appropriate this morning to ask ourselves this question. Why study the epistle of Paul to the Colossians? Well, apart from the fact that it is a book of the New Testament, I think the question goes deeper than that, and maybe we could ask it in another way. What relevance does a study of Colossians have for the average Christian in our day? Well, the answer, of course is that we live in a world of competing philosophies. It seems that nearly everyone has their own particular view, a world and life view, and whatever they assume is relevant to them, whatever captures their attention, however illogical or immoral or incoherent it might be, everyone has a philosophy of life. And in today's world... It seems that we have every conceivable notion, every conceivable thought, every conceivable philosophy you could ever imagine. Just to name a few, I sat in my study and I wrote down some of the things that just came to my mind that I know is a prevalent philosophy or thinking in our world, and I think the book of Colossians speaks to each one of them. Listen to just a few of these competing philosophies. Relativism, atheism, agnosticism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Zoroastrianism, New Age shamanism, Islam, Judaism, the yin-yang philosophy, Arminianism, socialism, Marxism, communism, Christadelphianism, pragmatism, mysticism, Psychology, psychiatry, Satanism, even the philosophy of nutritionism, homeopathic medicine, holistic medicine, the cult of high cholesterol, secular anthropology, philosophy in general, pornography, sexual perversion, cultism, occultism, money. I mean, those are just a few, really, of the thousands of worldviews that are competing for our effort, for our time, for our attention, for our minds that are in our world. And yet, it is true that Christianity stands in utter contrast from all of these that I've just mentioned. And that contrast, of course, is between all of those and the perfect unique work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. 
How so? Well, all of these philosophies, and I've just named a brief few of them, could all be lumped together over against Christianity because all of them could be classified in what we could term the religion of human achievement. The religion of human achievement. In some way or another, those that I've listed and so many much more have at their core the work of man, some level of human achievement, some level of human endeavor, some focus on man. And even within that group, some of that listing that I gave you, some of the more religious ones, the focus is on the synthesis of the work of God and the work of man. And you see, that's what sets it apart from true Christianity. For while all of them could be grouped into the religion of human achievement, where man himself becomes God, Christianity stands alone. It stands alone because we could classify it as the religion of divine accomplishment. Divine accomplishment. Christianity stands absolutely alone because it alone says that a relationship with God is completely the work of God without any cooperation from man whatsoever. And that's what you can do very simply and very honestly. You can take all of the religions of the world, all of the philosophies of the world, all of the world's life and worldviews, and you could group them into one category. And that is the category, the religion of human achievement. And you set in stark contrast to that Christianity, which is the religion of divine accomplishment. That is, that God has done it all in Christ apart from the work of man of any kind. And beloved, that is precisely the point that the Apostle Paul brings to us in this epistle to the Colossians, and that is the answer as to why it is relevant for us today. We could call the book of Colossians as a theme this, the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. The sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. You will no doubt hear me say that over and over and over again as we work our way through this great epistle. That is the theme of this book, the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. For you see, the Apostle Paul himself encountered very, very little that is different from our own day. Oh, it could have a different label. It might have a different definition here or there. But realistically, Paul and the others who were preaching Christ with him all saw in their own day what we see in our own day, and that is the religion of human achievement. That somehow and in some way, God has a cooperation from man so that man can ultimately stand as righteous before God, have a relationship with God, be intimate with God. And Paul, seeing all of these myriad philosophies, these teachings, these world and life views, said no. All of those things are rubbish when compared to Christianity, for in Christianity you have the true religion of divine accomplishment. For Christ has done it all 
Christ stands alone. Christ stands sufficient. He stands supreme. In fact, you might even look at the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, and see the very theme of this epistle. It says about Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created in Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that He Himself might come to have preeminence in everything. That is rightly the theme of this epistle, the sufficiency and preeminency of Jesus Christ. And if we were to be faithful in giving you the sense of this great epistle, we would say at the outset that the Apostle Paul is contrasting all of the philosophy of his day as over against the person of Jesus Christ and His sufficiency and His supremacy. And I would say as a corollary to that, it's not just that we affirm the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, but we allow His sufficiency and supremacy to have such an effect on us that it changes us from the inside out. That is precisely what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. That could be for us the theme of our study together. If it is true that Jesus Christ is sufficient and He is supreme, for all of the supposed truth claims and philosophies and world life views in our culture, then we allow Christ and His supremacy to so affect us that we are to live our lives by walking in Him and by being built up in Him. If there's one thing that I want you to gain from a diligent study from the preaching of the Word of God is that Jesus Christ is not only preeminent, sufficient, supreme, but that He will affect your life. He will transform you. That is really the reason why we are studying this epistle together. If Paul were here today, I'm sure he would say something like this. You don't need anything else or anyone else but Christ who accomplished on the cross what we could never do. And of course, what pales in comparison is the attempt by any man to somehow cooperate with God by the religion of human achievement, that which only God can do. And when man either attempts to cooperate with God or even goes his own way entirely from God, he does nothing but diminish the very sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. And that is why Paul has written this epistle to extol the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, even if you didn't know anything about the background of Paul's letter to the Colossians, all you would have to do is read the epistle itself 
and it would literally overwhelm you with the theme of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Listen to this. Colossians proclaims the absolute supremacy and sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is God's Son, chapter 1, verse 14. The object of the Christian's faith, chapter 1, verse 4. The Redeemer, chapter 1, verse 14. The image of God, verse 15. The Lord of creation, verse 15. Head of the church, verse 18. Reconciler of the universe, verse 20. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead, chapter 2, verse 9. And under Him every power and authority in the universe is subjected, chapter 2, verse 10. He is the essence of the mystery of God, chapter 2, verse 3. And in Him, all of God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie hidden, chapter 2, verse 3. He is the standard by which all religious teaching is to be measured, chapter 2, verse 8. And the reality of the truth foreshadowed by the regulations and rituals of the Old Covenant, chapter 2, verse 17. By His cross, He conquered the cosmic powers of evil, Chapter 2, verse 15, and following His resurrection, He was enthroned at the right hand of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Our life now lies hidden with Christ in God, but one day both He and we will be gloriously manifested. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. That's just a cursory look. Just a reading and a matching together all of the attributes, all of the things that it says in Colossians about the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. And of course, if that weren't enough, all that Christ is in His sufficiency and His supremacy is embodied in His very character. And it is that character that we can apply to our own lives, and that's what chapters 3 and 4 are all about. It's not enough for us just to know about the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, but He transforms us and Paul even gives us instruction as to how to do that. This then, beloved, is why we should study and learn the truths in this book. That is why it is relevant to us. If anyone should come to you and espouse a certain philosophy, a certain teaching, a certain world and life view, then your response to them is to measure that against the truth of the epistle to the Colossians. Is this true? Is this consistent with who Jesus Christ is? Is this matching the very sufficiency and supremacy of Christ as revealed in this book? That's why it's relevant. That's why we must study it. Now, this morning, we're just going to be able to briefly introduce this tremendous letter. And I want you to know several things regarding the proper historical background for Colossians. Now, I don't want to bore you, and I don't want to give you information that you might not seem is, you might, you might not say to yourself, seems relevant to you in your life, but it is, because it is crucial for us to set the proper background and the history of why Paul has written what he has written. Okay? I'm going to give you four things that are going to be crucial for you to understand as to what this epistle is all about. First of all, I want you to know where the city of Colossae was, and who founded the church there, and then what was the date and time of the epistle, and then what Paul's intent was to write to these dear believers. Okay? We're going to do it quickly, 
You might be frustrated that you're not going to be able to write everything down. That's okay. You can get a tape. You can learn these things over and over and over again to your heart's desire. I'm going to go quickly so that we can exposit, by way of an introduction, the greeting this morning, which is contained in verses 1 and 2. All right? Number one, the city itself. The city itself. Colossae was a major city in the southern part of the Roman province that we know as Asia Minor, which, by the way, today is modern Turkey. Now, I've been to modern Turkey. They prefer to call it Turkeyek, probably because of the connotation of that term, Turkey. And when I was there, I visited the old ancient city of Ephesus that has been excavated, and it is a marvelous, marvelous tour that we had. Well, just up from the road to Ephesus is Colossae. It was in an area that at that time was commonly called the Lycus Valley. There were three settlements there, generally in the same spot, only separated by a few miles. And it was a very, very fertile area, this Lycus Valley. And the three cities, the three settlements that were there were Laodicea, you know that, of course, from Revelation 2 and 3, and Hierapolis. You might not be as familiar with that particular city. Both of them were great cities at that time, and they were on either side of what was the Lycus River. The Lycus River was intersected by another river called the Meander, and it became a very, very major trade route at the time of the writing of the New Testament and even before. And resting about 10 miles upstream from the intersection of the Lycus and Meander rivers was a place called Colossae on the banks of the Lycus. Now apparently, during Paul's time, Colossae had degenerated as a city. It had become somewhat insignificant. Now we don't know all of the reasons for that. We don't know much of the details about this city at all because, frankly, there was a major earthquake in, in around 61 A.D., and that area has never been excavated. We don't know much about it at all. And apparently, Paul's letter arrived shortly, after, shortly before the earthquake, and when it struck, it may have been that the city fathers decided not to rebuild some of what was destroyed, and in fact, by the 8th century A.D., the city was completely abandoned. Now, one of the major clues to interpreting the book of Colossians is to know about the people who were there, especially the influence of Judaism. Now, it apparently had a fairly large Jewish minority within this predominantly Gentile and pagan city. In the middle of the second century, we have found a sequence of letters sent by the Roman Senate to Asia Minor in support of the Jews who were living there, and they indicated these letters a sizable Jewish population. Now, we're not particularly sure about the numbers exactly, but it could have been anywhere from a few thousand Jews who lived in that predominantly pagan Gentile area, maybe even up to somewhere around 11,000 to 14,000 Jews. Now, we know that partly because... There was a temple tax, as you know, that was levied upon every Jewish family. And there are some records of the money that was collected. 
and by a little deducing, you can determine that there were at least several thousand Jews living in this city at that time. Now, why do I center in on the Jews who were living there? Well, that will become a very, very important piece of information as we go on a little bit farther. All right, number two, the founding of the church. That's a little bit about Colossae. Now let's talk a little bit about the founding of the church. Frankly, we don't have a lot of data from the Bible as to the founding of this church in Colossae. Apparently, Paul did not visit Colossae, at least in order to plant a church, although it does say in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that Paul taught for two years in the school of Tyrannus. You may have read that. And it says there that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we don't know exactly if the Apostle Paul went to Colossae himself. He may have and certainly did preach the word of the Lord all around that area of Asia Minor. And it could have been that there were and certainly were a number of converts converted to Christianity from pagan religions, from Judaism itself, and they may have been the founders of the church at Colossae. In fact, it is my belief that the real founder of the church at Colossae is Epaphras. You can read about him in chapter 1, verse 7 of Colossians. Paul says, Just as you have learned it, that is the gospel, the grace of God in truth, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And apparently Epaphras himself was originally from Colossae. Look over at chapter 4, verse 12. Paul identifies him as such. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So, I take it that Epaphras was no doubt not only the founder of the church, but also its first pastor, its spiritual father, spiritual leader. I don't believe Paul was the founder of the church, and it may be even true according to chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul never had met the Colossians personally before. For it says in chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. You see, that could personally well be a reference to the fact that Colossae had never seen the Apostle Paul. He no doubt had a tremendous influence, may have been the actual person to be used of the Lord to convert Epaphras, but apparently he did not found the church. We do know some things that are incredibly important for us, but we don't have much time to talk about them. I wish we had time to develop the whole introduction that would be crucial, but at least enough to say that this was a lovely and wonderful church. They had received Jesus Christ. They were walking in Him. And Paul writes to encourage and affirm them in the faith. Now, it would be very, very different than the kind of worship service that we're now experiencing in this big auditorium. They, no doubt, had house fellowships. In fact, if you look over in chapter 4, verse 15, it gives you a little bit of the flavor of the 
founding of this church. little brief reference in verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nymphus and the church that is in her house or in that masculine pronoun or noun, Nymphus, in their house or in his house. And apparently that's a reference to at least one of the house churches that made up the church at Colossae. They no doubt did not meet in a group setting like this, but met from house to house. And it could well be also that the saints and faithful brothers of chapter 1, verse 2 are these individual house churches in Colossae, not one large gathering as we know it. And of course, that changes the perspective a little bit in your mind, I trust. And Paul is wanting this letter to be circulated from each individual house to house, even going on from there to Laodicea, no doubt Heropolis as well, and a circulating of the various letters that he was writing and instructing them regarding their faith. All right, let's go on to number three, the date and time of the writing of the book of Colossians. Now, as I mentioned to you, there was a severe earthquake somewhere around 61 A.D., So we assume that the dating of the writing of this epistle must have been somewhere before that time, probably in the mid to late 50s A.D. Because surely Paul would have mentioned something about this devastating earthquake had he known about it at that time. One thing we do know for sure is this. Paul is the author of this epistle and he is writing from prison. We know that explicitly from a couple of verses. Chapter 4, verse 3. He says, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned. That's a very clear reference to the imprisonment of Paul. Also notice verse 10. Aristarchus my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Another reference, obviously, to the imprisonment of Paul and his associates. And then again, of course, in the last verse of this epistle, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my imprisonment. So obviously, Paul is writing from prison. We believe from the prison at Rome. There have been a number of commentators who have speculated that it could have been an imprisonment in Ephesus that we don't know anything about. It could be an imprisonment somewhere else. But it seems best that we take it as Paul being imprisoned in Rome. And we believe that Paul the Apostle is indeed the author. Now you say, well, that's fairly obvious. It's got his name right here. And yet, it's amazing to me that when I read commentators, when I read Bible commentaries, many of those that would be considered somewhat moderate, even to those who are on the more liberal persuasion, are doubting the authenticity of this Pauline authorship. And it seems very curious to me that to begin the epistle, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and to end the epistle, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Apparently, Paul had something to do with the writing of this epistle. He's the author. And to doubt that, I think, is to be incredulous. In fact, 
one of the great New Testament scholars, Donald Guthrie, says this, there is no shred of evidence that the Pauline authorship of the whole or any part of this epistle was ever disputed until the 19th century. And you know what context that finds itself in the 19th century. That was the beginning of what we know as liberalism. And they, of course, began to doubt many, many things, including the inerrancy of Scripture and much of what we would take for granted as to the authorship of the various books. He goes on to say, it formed part of the Pauline corpus, that is Colossians, as far back as can be traced, and evidence of such a character cannot lightly be swept aside. And it is amazing to me how lightly it is swept aside when you read on the background of the authorship of Colossians. So, here is Paul. He's the author. He sends word. He receives word, that is, from Epaphras. And he now wants to write. He wants to send them a letter. He's going to send that, by the way, through Tychicus and Onesimus. That's what chapter 4, verses 7 and 9 tell us. Epaphras apparently wants to stay with Paul and to minister to his needs in Rome. And so, therefore, he sends this letter with Tychicus and Onesimus, and they deliver it to the various house churches there. Another interesting note on this epistle to the Colossians, it's very, very akin and has a great affinity with the book of Philemon. In fact, if you were to pull a set of commentaries off your shelf, either a full commentary on the whole Bible or an individual commentary on the epistle to the Colossians, often you will have Philemon attached to it. And that is because they are very, very close. Many of the same people are mentioned. Paul, of course, is the author of both. There is even some similar subject matter. Onesimus, of course, is mentioned in Colossians, also mentioned in Philemon's. And so it's really not a question at all, at least in my mind, as to who the author of this epistle really is. Now, it could be true that when Paul references Timothy in the first verse of the first chapter, Timothy could have been Paul's amanuensis. Now, that's a word that means that Paul dictated verbally this epistle. He didn't physically write it with his own hand, except maybe the greeting at the end, as he says. And Timothy, it could have been, was the writer for Paul literally writing down at the moment Paul was dictating such a correspondence. So Timothy could have been mentioned there because he was the amanuensis. He certainly was a close companion of Paul. Nevertheless, Paul is the author of this epistle. Now, the fourth and most important question before we exposit the two verses. When and to whom and why is Paul writing? Well, again, mid-50s. That's the date that we have set. We believe that that particular epistle has been written. And the question is, who is really the subject matter for whom Paul speaks? That is a tremendous debated topic. Over the century, really, the last 100 years, various suggestions and interpretations have been given as to exactly what is the purpose for Paul's writing. And more specifically, whom is Paul writing about? He seems to be writing at times in a, in a way that is answering in a polemical fashion a group or group of pe groups of people. And the question is, to whom does Paul really refer when he is writing some of the things he writes? Obviously, the answer to that question gives us the very key 
to answering the exposition of the text itself. What is Paul doing? What is he saying? What is he referring to when he speaks and uses the language that he does? Now let me just tell you that about a hundred years ago, some Bible commentators began to theorize that Paul was addressing a group known as the Gnostics. Now how many of you are familiar with that term, Gnostics? The Gnostics were a group of individuals who had what they called a secret knowledge. In fact, that's where the word itself comes from. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And they believed that they had attained to a higher level of secret knowledge that only they possessed. And they came into Colossae or some sort of incipient pre-Gnosticism and they began spouting their own philosophy and world and life view. And as to these commentators of some 100 years ago, they began to theorize that this is the group that Paul was referring to. This is the group that he was answering. Therefore, everything that you should interpret this epistle with should be against the backdrop of the Gnostics, those with the secret knowledge, the higher knowledge. They were bent on the wisdom that only they could attain and only they could disseminate. In fact, if you'll read any commentary just about, you'll read that somehow and in some way this was the group that Paul was writing against. You might even hear a term used as you read through a commentary called the Colossian heresy or the Colossian philosophy. And it is against this backdrop of the syncretistic, paganistic Gnostics of the day whom Paul is writing against. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 8. It says there, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And you see, someone would say, there it is. That is a Gnostic heresy that was being perpetrated in this time, and Paul is specifically answering them. And he's saying they have their philosophy, it is theirs alone, they, they alone have the secret knowledge, don't listen to them. Don't be held captive by their philosophy. They apparently were being taught a syncretistic diet of all kinds of pagan philosophy and thinking, and Paul has now heard from Epaphras, he has become concerned, and so now he writes in order to counteract this heresy, this philosophy, this false teaching to set them straight. Now here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that Gnosticism itself was not a philosophy that became of age until around the 2nd century. This, of course, is being written much earlier than that, and so in my mind it is very difficult to see that these Gnostics, these men with the secret knowledge, would have been the ones that Paul was writing against. Some of them have backed off from that, knowing now the dates of the writing of the epistle and the emergence of Gnosticism in the second century. And so they back away and say, okay, it wasn't Gnosticism full-blown, but it was incipient Gnosticism, pre-Gnosticism. Well, it seems to me that that's quite difficult as well. It's difficult because we don't know that for sure. We cannot say for sure who Paul is writing against, who he's counteracting. And in fact, I'm not sure I'd be a faithful Bible teacher to you 
if I gave you what I believed was a sure and ultimate answer as to who Paul is writing against because I don't know for sure. We don't know historically who Paul is writing against. I have my own theory, of course, and that is that it really wasn't the Gnostics at all, but it was those Jewish minority folks that I mentioned earlier. That's why I said it was important as we come later into this discussion. Why do I say that? Well, it seems to me that there were a number of very clear things in Paul's epistle to the Colossians that speaks of Judaism. Look with me, first of all, at chapter 3, verse 11. It says in chapter 3, verse 11, that we now as Christians have a renewal. A, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And I take from that that Paul was answering a Judaistic charge that said that these Jews of that day, even though obviously different from the Judaism of Palestine, were nevertheless to be reckoned with. They might have even been saying, if you really want to be right with God, you have to be circumcised. If you really want to be right with God, you have to be a Jew. Or if you're not a Jew, you have to become circumcised, you have to be proselyted, you have to come into Judaism, for that is truly how God blesses you. And Paul comes along in chapter 3 and verse 11 and says, No, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. seems to me fairly obvious that at least, if not the major group, one of the major groups that Paul is arguing against are these Jews. You could even see some of that in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 11. Right in the context of these captivating philosophies and empty deceptions. He says, In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is clearly a reference to those Jews who might assume that circumcision is absolutely essential in order to be saved. And Paul comes along and says, No, you have a circumcision. It is a circumcision that is without hands. That is the circumcision of Christ. He goes on to talk about in verse 13, the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He says even in verse 16, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to a food or a drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. You see, all of those things were very consistent with Judaism of the time. Food and drink, they had very specific laws and regulations governing such things. Festivals, new moons, Sabbath days. Paul comes along and says things, verse 17, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It could very well have been that Paul comes and he preaches Christ either through this letter or Epaphras in his Bible teaching, in his preaching ministry, and these Judaizers come along and say, no, no, it's circumcision that's important. It's the laws and regulations and rituals of the Jewish religion. And they come along and say it is not so. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, 
and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. You say, well, that doesn't sound like Judaism. Well, believe it or not, there are some elements of Judaism that did that very thing. And if you combine that with the influence of a pagan culture around those Jews, you can see very easily that they might have adopted some of the very principles of their own day amalgamated some of those things, interspersed them with their own teaching, and now Paul has come to defend the truth of Christianity. He talks about inheritance in chapter 1, verse 12. I mentioned the circumcision issue, the dividing wall of chapter 3, verse 11, the issue of wisdom in chapter 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, the concept of fullness. All of those things have a relationship to the Jews of that day. In fact, one of the Bible commentators that I read, James Dunn, said this, none of the features of the teaching alluded to in chapter 2, verses 8 to 23, resist being understood in Jewish terms, and several can only or most plausibly be understood in Jewish terms. In other words, the only real way to understand to whom Paul is writing against is to understand the backdrop of Judaism. And I believe that is the answer to the question. You say, why are you belaboring this and taking a long time on it? Well, simply because as we move through this epistle, as we exposit verse by verse the truths that are contained in this book, you are going to see in a very clear and precise way that Paul is arguing against these Judaizers. Maybe not to the degree and to the extent that he did in Galatians, but nevertheless he is writing against those who would be involved in the religion of human achievement. And he says, no, Christ is sufficient. Christ is supreme. You don't need any of that. It is Christ plus nothing. It's not Christ plus circumcision. It's not Christ plus Sabbath keeping. It is not Christ plus festivals. It is not Christ plus new moons. It is not Christ plus food and drink. It is Christ alone. And that is no doubt the very evidence for whom Paul is writing. Now, very quickly, verses 1 and 2. You now know the author. You now know when it was written. You now know some of the details surrounding the writing. You now know a little bit about Colossae. Now, this wonderful, wonderful epistle. And it won't take us long. Just two brief verses. I want you to notice four very, very clear and unmistakable things about these first two verses. Number one, Paul's commission. Paul's commission. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Who is the author? It is Paul. And what does it tell us about Paul? Well, it tells us that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, Paul identifies himself as the very author of this epistle. And that was his habit. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Ephesians 1, you would see that this was indeed the habit of Paul to identify himself. And normally, to identify himself in the way that he has identified himself here in Colossians. In Galatians chapter 1, he basically says the same thing. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ 
and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is trying to make it very, very clear at the outset that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ and it wasn't by anything other than the will of God. Now, you say that's kind of funny to start a letter like this, to have yourself kind of plastered on the front part of it. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm writing to you. But in that day, it was very common practice. In fact, I wish we could go back to that because now when I read a letter, I have to read the whole thing until I figure out who it is at the end. And if the truth were known, I fudge a little bit often and I turn to the back to see who it is so that I can understand the context for which they are writing me. And that's precisely what Paul does. And that was a very common habit of the day. Their culture was to identify themselves and their addressees at the very beginning. And he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Why does he say he is an apostle? Is he kind of puffing his chest a bit and saying, I'm an apostle and you're not? No, I don't think so. I think what he's saying by that is he he is identifying himself. Surely there were other Pauls at that time. And he's saying, I am the Paul who was commissioned by God himself. It was God's will. Paul is saying that he was commissioned by God himself as a special emissary an ambassador by God. William Hendrickson says, he had attained his high office neither through aspiration nor usurpation nor yet through nomination by other men, but by divine preparation. I like that. He was divinely prepared and qualified by the sovereign will of God. And he was an apostle. Now, just a brief note about this term apostle. In your Bibles, you will often come across that word apostle. And you need to understand briefly a little bit of how it is used. It's basically used in three ways in the New Testament. Number one, it is used in a very non-technical, in a very generic way. It's used that way in Philippians 2.25 when it's talking about Epaphroditus. And it simply refers to him as a messenger not talking about an apostle with the capital A. It's simply one who is sent with a message. That's literally what the word apostolos means, one who is sent with a message. Secondly, it has what we could call a semi-technical sense. There were some, especially from the book of Acts, Barnabas and Paul, for example, who were called apostles. Yet we know for a fact that Barnabas was not one of the twelve apostles So obviously it doesn't mean that there. It even uses in Romans 16, verse 7, kind of the semi-technical use of the word apostle, and it mentions a couple of men there. But here, here in Colossians 1, it is referring to Paul in the very technical sense, in the very real, tangible sense, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which, by its very definition, meant that that person had to actually witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was one of the signs of an apostle. He had to be a part of the band of followers who visually faced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, now wait a minute. I know that that's true of the twelve, but is that true of Paul? Yes, it was. He might not have been there visually, physically himself, but he had received an actual revelation from Christ. 
Christ had visited him and that made him qualified as an apostle. In fact, Paul had a number of visitations by the risen Christ himself. To the degree in 2 Corinthians, you remember, he says things I shouldn't even talk about. They're so lofty. They're, they're so tremendous. And yet that qualified him as an apostle. Now, would that make him proud and arrogant? To the contrary. He continues to refer to himself as a man who is so incredibly unworthy of the office. Remember, he said of himself, I am the chief sinner. He says in 2 Corinthians, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. I don't think he's doing it in a proud sense. I think he's identifying himself with the proper attestation. I have not done it, but God has done it to me. And I need to be faithful, and it is his will. And then, of course, he mentions Timothy, his companion in the faith. Now, Notice also, secondly, the Colossian community in verse 2. Notice what it says. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. First, Paul's commission. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Secondly, the Colossian community to which he writes. His addressees. To the saints and faithful brethren. You notice he refers to Timothy as a brother, Adel Foss. And then he mentions the brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, Adelphoi, brethren, brothers. It's a tremendous term of endearment. And Paul, I believe, is communicating a tremendous truth by this. What is he saying? You might say he's simply referring to them as brothers. It has no particular meaning. I disagree. I think when he says, you are my brother, you are my faithful brethren, he is communicating volumes. He is saying very clearly that you and I are a part of the family of God. We're a part of the brotherhood of God. We are actually fellow brothers of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. You say, why was that important for Paul to communicate that? I believe it was important because if we look back on those to whom Paul is addressing later, these Judaizers, wouldn't that blow their mind? That the Gentiles, the ones to whom Paul has been called as an apostle by the will of God, are themselves able now to come into the family of God. You say, why was that important? Don't you realize from your own reading of the New Testament that there was great enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles? There was a tremendous enmity between them. And now Paul the apostle comes along and says, you, my Gentile and my Jewish brothers who are faithful brethren in Christ. There is a tremendous communication with that. He is saying that we, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, have a familial relationship. We are part of the family of God. It is not anymore Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. You are my brothers. And he's talking about our union with Christ. By the way, he says there, you are my faithful brethren in Christ. I can't help from just telling you that that also is an extremely important designation by Paul. He'll use it many, many times in this epistle. He'll use it in chapter 1, verse 14, verse 16, 17, 19, 28, chapter 2, verse 3, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 15. He'll say, 
in Christ, in Him, in whom. And He has communicated volumes by that phrase. It is by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ that we have any faithfulness at all. It is by our union with Jesus Christ that we can even be called brothers in the faith. Don't lose sight of that. Sometimes we will hear someone say, in Christ, or in Him, or in whom, and we let it slip right on by. Don't let it happen to you. Every time I hear that phrase, in Christ, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. Because everything I have, everything I am, everything that is about me, everything that is about you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is because of your union with Him. It is because you are in Christ. Now, notice, thirdly, the calling and character of these dear people. It says, to the saints and faithful brethren. Now, isn't it curious that he uses the word saints? Hoi, hagioi, the saints. He said, I thought that that was reserved for Roman Catholic worshipers. The saints. Saint Christopher, Saint so-and-so. I didn't know that that refers to the run of the mill believer. It does. You and I are the saints. Did you realize that? You said, wait a minute. I know a few of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm not sure about their sainthood. Well, I think here it's referring not necessarily to the experience of your life, but to your status. To your status. We are the saints. And he's referring to our status in Christ not necessarily to the degree of our holiness that we have attained. If that were the case, probably none of us could really be called saints. We're working toward that. That's our desire, that's our goal, but we haven't yet reached that. Our calling, we're saints. Then he gets to our character. Notice what he says, the faithful brethren. And he uses the word pistos from the word faith, and it's the idea that we are trustworthy. Now he's getting into our spiritual life. And he's telling these dear brothers and sisters in Colossae, you are by your status, saints, you are by your character, faithful, trustworthy. Let me ask you a question. Do you see yourself as faithful, trustworthy? That's certainly at least one intent one application from this passage. You might say of yourself, yes, I'm in Christ, I have a relationship with Christ, but are you faithful in Christ? Are you trustworthy? Do you do the things that would characterize you as a faithful brother or sister in Christ? Don't miss that application. Don't, when you read introductions and conclusions and genealogies, and other such things in the Scripture and pass them off as unapplicable to you. Ask yourself this question. How does this apply to me? What relevance does this have for my life? And it certainly has relevance because we can ask ourselves this question. If the Apostle Paul were writing this church, if he were referring to me, would he call me a faithful brethren? Would he call our church faithful brothers and sisters in Christ? Would he call me trustworthy? Paul's commission... The Colossian community itself, their calling and character, and lastly, their contentedness. Notice what he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace. 
You say, what's to exposit about that? Oh, I found a few things. Number one, the word grace. It's from the word charis. You know it well. It's the word grace. But originally, it didn't mean anything other than just a hail, greeting. And the Apostle Paul borrows that and moves it into a Christian context and he says it like this. You who are grace. You who have been given grace. You've been given mercy. And he says by this, my prayer for you is that you will be graced even more. You will be given mercy by God. And he takes that Greek idea of grace and he brings it in and impregnates it with the meaning of salvation. And he says, you who have been saved, I want you to be graced even more. And then he says, peace, grace to you and peace. And he borrows a Hebrew greeting. You've probably heard of it. Shalom. It means peace or regard or favor. It even means wholeness or soundness or contentedness. I love that. It's saying, here's my prayer for you, that God would continue to grace you and that you also would experience His contentedness. That you would be whole. That you would be sound. That you would have great favor. When I was in Israel, I would see someone who was a Jewish person and I would say, Shalom. Not knowing, of course, what kind of response I might receive. And they would say, Shalom Lakim. And it means great favor, much favor, much wholeness to you and your family. And that's what Paul is saying to these dear people. He's saying you ought to receive the grace and favor of God which is unmerited and undeserved that you have now been granted. Now, how do we apply that truth? Let me ask you this question. Do you regularly experience the grace and peace of God? Do you, as a habit of your life, experience the contentedness for which Paul prays to the Colossians? I hope you do. Now you say, what other nugget of truth is important in this grace to you and peace? Do you remember where Paul is writing from? Where? You mean the Apostle Paul himself, who is no doubt chained to a Roman centurion, who is not having the freedom to preach the Gospel as he would otherwise want to, is saying about himself and praying for the Colossians, grace to you and peace? I'll tell you, that should be a shot in your arm spiritually and mine as well. Can you say in the circumstances of your life, grace to you and peace? Am I experiencing the contentedness, the wholeness, the soundness that only God can grant? Here's the summary of what we've learned. Paul is writing from prison. He's exhorting, encouraging the Colossians regarding the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. And he's been commissioned by God, by His expressed will, to be a light to the Gentiles. And he is praying for God's contentedness, His grace, His mercy, His blessing to be on those who are in Christ, in Colossae, together with his brother Timothy, and all of those who are recognized by their sainthood, their status, and their character, they are trustworthy. That's a lot. 
That's a lot to digest in just two brief verses. And guess what? As we move along, there's a lot more to digest. Let's pray together.